You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk number 385. Hello and welcome back once again to the Outdoor Station. When one thinks of British adventurers who have pushed themselves and overcome major adversity in the outdoors world, the regular names which pop up are Sir Ralph Fiennes, Chris Bonington, Edmund Hillary, Alan Hinks, Chris Townsend and so on. Tough, hardy individuals with grit and determination. Then, of course, we have those who have risen from the celebrity ranks, such as David Walliams, Eddie Izzard, Ben Fogel, Ewan McGregor and Davina McCall. Great achievements still, however, with perhaps more than a little help, a film crew and possibly a nice glossy book deal at the end of it. But what about new young British adventurers coming through the ranks? Surely there can't be many firsts left in this world, which the old guard and the celebrities haven't already ticked off. Well, I'm pleased to say there are, and it pleases me even more to note that some of our new adventurers are doing it on a shoestring without a book deal or a PR agent in sight. I'm Bob Cartwright, and in this podcast, I'll be talking with Ash Dykes, a name probably lost on most of you. It certainly was new to me, too. He's only 24, but he has already shown the makings of a great adventurer, taking a step away from the norm, relying on his own wits, analysing the facts when things go wrong, and seeking to improve himself in the process. In August 2014, he became the first person to walk unaided 1,500 miles across Mongolia, from west to east, taking in the Altai Mountains, the Gobi Desert and the steppes along the way. It took 78 days to complete, and he pulled a homemade trailer weighing 120 kilos every step of the way. As you listen to this, do check out the Outdoor Station website, where there's more information about him, links and a few images to give you a taster of what his experience involved. I met up with him on the first night of his series of talks, Breaking Mongolia, at Malvern Theatres, where he shared the whole experience, the highs and lows, and his enthusiasm for adventure. It was his first time public speaking before a large audience, and he delivered his story with punch and momentum. His approach to adventure was refreshing in this media-controlled, restrictive, packaged world in which we now live. He has the spur-of-the-moment intoxicating attitude of why not and let's do it, without instantly being pulled back by age, rules, tradition and sponsorship chasing. Ash Dykes is a man who lives for the moment, and I hope we will be hearing his name more in years to come. I'm Ash Dykes. I've just come back from achieving the world first walking solo and unsupported across Mongolia. And I'm currently on a UK tour, a theatre tour, hitting 10 venues, speaking of my experience. Well, it's your first uh, night tonight doing the talk. How are the audience? Amazing. Yeah, the, the whole talk actually went better than expected. And it's always good when that happens, you know, and you prepare lots for it and then it pays off and you, and you see some good feedback. Well, tell us briefly, uh, for people that have not heard of your name, exactly what you've done. It started about five years ago. I've gone from taking on adventures uh, and expeditions, learning how to survive in the jungle with the Burmese Hill Tribe. I left when I was 19, this was, um, cycling the length of Vietnam. Uh, And then I was working for two years as a scuba diving instructor in Thailand whilst competing against the locals in the martial art of Muay Thai. Um, And various other adventures, really, that have sort of fed my hunger 
for wanting to achieve something bigger and better than I've previously achieved before. And that's when Mongolia comes into it. Okay, well, let's just backtrack a bit. Uh, you, quite a few things you swept in a couple of sentences there. But let's just start. First of all, where did the idea of uh, travel and adventure come from? You must have had uh, parents that have encouraged you to explore the world. Um, I'd say, yeah, with my parents, you know, my mum and dad are very uh, motivational, inspiring, but they like to go off and, 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 and travel in a different way, more, the, more like the, the holidays, you know, they like the swim pools, I suppose, where in, that, in their country they do go off and explore that country, but not to ex- an extent of cycling or walking, it'll be renting a car and going off. So in terms of adventure, I don't really know where it comes from. Yeah. I'd say my, my granddad, uh, you know, he's lived in Pakistan for 22 years, he's currently in India, um, he survives out in the wild, so I suppose I get a... a get something from that but I've only met him for about eight weeks of my life so I don't really know him well enough to to pick up any important details from him you know the trigger for adventure comes from somewhere Mm. Um, you know you're either running away from something or running trying to find something yeah Uh, and I'm just curious to see you know what started the the all the various things you've done I mean the cycle trip was quite an interesting trip in the sense that people might suddenly visualize that you had a touring bike and you had all the gear and all the rest of it but you chose to buy a couple of ladies bikes yeah Yeah, we called them old granny's bikes elder and dot 10 15 pound each no gears no suspension basket on the front pink bell you know we found string on the side of the road that we tied our bike our bags onto the back with um five minutes on google i'm all about the low preparation naff gear that's a real adventure you know off you go into a part where you'd have no clue what what you were letting yourself in for uh, but it's also the challenge i'd say it's, it's never anything particular that motivates you i'd say it's 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 down to when you're first born what could be genetic, but down to when you're first born, everything that happens to you whilst you're growing and how you react to to that situation. Like if someone shies away from a challenge, they'll probably grow up to, to, to not take on a challenge. They'll be quite happy and content um, doing whatever it is they are doing. But if someone sees a challenge and, and wants to take it on, they'll probably grow up to want to take take on more challenges and bigger challenges and want to uh, progress and, and see what see what they're capable of mm. so i say it's from a very young age you know even possibly bits that i don't really remember i've always been going after the next challenge to see how far i can go mm. and are you from a big family um i've got my t- two parents who live together um an older sister and a younger brother and what do they all feel about your adventures yeah yeah they uh my parents were warmed into it uh, I, I would say gently compared to Mongolia, but they still had their worries. I was 19, I was still a teenager, away from home, telling them what bikes I've bought, about to cycle over a 1,000 miles. They had their worries, and then it just kept getting bigger and better from there, so they've kind of grown used to it in a way. I know? would have thought that would have been an interesting phone call to be on the end of. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. 19, I've just bought a, a girl's bike with no, no gears, <laughs> and I'm going to cycle across Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah, good start. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And we didn't see any more... Um, cyclists really but like, yeah that, I think that's the main thing you know for me just lack of gear lack of equipment especially because it was so low budget as well mm. money was the main factor but I think even if I did have the money I would have still chose those bikes mm. you know no pump there was no puncture repair kit that we had well that's, that's I mean, to my mind that's proper traveling anyway that's doing it yeah. properly that's you know yeah. without the support crew but I mean just looking back at that uh, particular cycle trip what 
did you learn about yourself when you did that? Not just the physical part of it, but the actual practicalities and also the, the maturity of, of going through a country and mixing with locals and not knowing a word of the language. In actual fact, I felt um, it progressed on me, like with all the locals saying that it can't be done and it's dangerous and obviously uh, the Westerners saying <clears throat> it could be a dangerous place to go out there and experience it for myself and to actually go against a lot of people would be you know, a bit too frightened to go against what, what advice they've been given but I just had to go against it and found out for myself that you know, it's not massively dangerous I suppose it's dangerous in some aspects everywhere you go so to learn through experience was that I'd say the Vietnam catalyst was the one that I truly learned by just going against what everyone said, going out there and, and just doing it because I was curious to see what would happen, to see if I could do it. And and that's changed me in a way that, OK, whatever the, the, the people say, whether it can, can't be done, take it in, absorb it, but don't let it stop you because at the end of the day, it's, it's down to you mm. whether, whether, whether you know whether you can make it or not. Yeah. But do you not think now at uh, 24, the dizzy age of 24, when you look back at 19, yeah. uh, do you not have a little bit more respect for perhaps for planning and, and thinking about potential dangers? Yes, I do. And I do quite say that some of my risks were pretty stupid, especially one of them not wearing a helmet. You know, something as simple as that, but Vietnam, crazy roads. We were literally dodged by lorries. We were crashed into by mopeds. And the whole time we had no light, cycling through the night and no helmets. So that's, um, you know, that's not brave. That's reckless and quite stupid. And that's something I wouldn't do now. Um, and the lack of preparation, I wouldn't say the lack... The helmet's the lack of preparation, but in terms of planning the route, I see that as more being more adventurous. Mm. You know, the fact that I don't know what's coming up ahead is that it's a mystery. I quite like that. So mm. with the Mongolia one, um, that was life or death. So I had to really plan that out properly. Mm. Well, coming on to the Mongolia one, I'm interested, obviously, in the actual uh, preparation part of that. Uh, you, you had advice and obviously help from from your tour manager or your your adventure manager, yeah. uh, who was somebody that had attempted it and, and hadn't achieved it themselves. But what about the actual basic practicalities of of um, the paperwork and permissions? How flexible is Mongolia generally as a a place to to attempt something like this? Um, the visa situations. Like, like Rob Mills was my expedition manager. The guy who previously attempted it only sent me an email, a brief email, offering advice. He wasn't he wasn't part of the expedition that Sorry, I. Sorry, my mistake. Yeah, yeah, no, no worries. So having Rob Mills on board, who had a team based out in Mongolia, you know, was massively helpful. One because for a tourist, I think if I'm right in saying it's 30 days free on arrival, a British citizen. But to get two months is slightly harder. You need, you know, they really look into it. Why are you here for two months? for three months is is even even harder and then I pushed on because I didn't believe I could I could walk it in 90 days um so I pushed on and got another 30 days so that was actually from a company who sponsored me based in Mongolia so if you've got uh, a, a local there willing to sponsor you then then that's fine you know as long as you've got the days you can do the expedition what sort of sponsorship are we talking about there it was um sponsorship to say what I'm doing that they'll be looking after me uh and then they requested requested the visa. So right. what would that like business business sponsorship? Right. Okay. Uh, so it's sort of like a support, really. If anything went wrong, they they would look after you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. it. Okay. Yeah. So that the the government wouldn't have to worry yeah. about this guy walking along. Uh, if he dies out there, then it's the, everyone looks towards the government. Um, I had a team out there who who would look after me. 
Yeah, it all sounds very grand when you say I've got this team behind me when actually it's one guy on a phone. <laughs> yeah, and the, the satellite phone, like I said, it was really low budget. Again, this expedition, the satellite phone that I did have couldn't receive calls, it couldn't send out calls, it was text only, and a max of 160 characters, black and white, uh, and rescue couldn't be done by helicopter. It, I was relying on them to get to me overland, so they said allow at least two to three days for me for them to get mm. to me. Whereas if it was a snake bite or severe heat exhaustion, then uh, that would be far too late. Mm. Well, you got yourself into a few situations there, and certainly uh, you know it's been quite interesting listening to the story going across the, the three sections really: yeah. uh, the mountains and then the desert and then the steps. Yeah. The uh, trailer that you designed or had put together or whatever. Yeah. I was fascinated to hear you took that to Scotland uh, to have a test and realise the limitations <laughs> of it and you. Yeah. Um, how did the design come about? I mean, was it a back of a fag packet sort of job? No, I researched on other man-hauling expeditions and I was looking at, at some of the best out there and there was a guy who crossed the Simpson Desert in Australia and I looked at the sort of desert car he had because everyone was saying how, how good it was. And his was, I'm sure, carbon fibre, so really lightweight. Uh, so a mix of his and a mix of Ripley Davenport, the, the guy who previously attempted it, and went in for a similar-looking design, but obviously not carbon fibre, mild steel, so the trailer alone weighed 40 kilograms with yeah, nothing on. Start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it, it was robust, you know, it was strong. But Scotland finished it off on day two because I didn't, have the metal base you know had a wooden mm. base it was cable tires keeping it in place you yeah, know it was yeah. really well, where, where did you go in scotland it was the west highland way the rivers were big the storms were were you know massive uh, and the wind basically blew off the wooden board when i took the gear off mm. to cross the river the wind was so bad it's you know snapped the board and blew it into the nearest lock so there was no base really for me to put all my gear in. I had to call it off day two. I, did, was I right in hearing you say that you actually to cross some of the rivers in Scotland when you were doing the dry run, as it were? You took it apart and put it back together again. Was it the same design and trailer? And did you do that when you're in in Mongolia? I didn't need to in Mongolia. I didn't take it apart once actually. But in Scotland, because of the rivers were mm. so because we had a big rainy rainy season that time, uh, the rivers were big, uh, and there was this silver motorway railing going across the river, hung up, blocking debris that I had to then balance across because the river was too deep to swim. So I had to dismantle my trailer and carry each of it, each of the parts over one by one. Uh, and it was extremely windy, you know, I was blowing all over the place. And on two different occasions that happened. And of course, when I abandoned, I had to go back that same route. So four times I had to disassemble and reassemble my trailer mm, going mm. over these rivers it's madness. Yeah, I know Scotland well, and yeah, it can, yeah. It can give you a good pasting, can't it? It can, it's extreme. Definitely a good dry run. This podcast and over 380 more are available on the Outdoor Station website and are entirely free to download and absorb whenever you need an injection of self-powered outdoor entertainment. We've undertaken numerous trips ourselves and talked with lots of people along the way. We've spoken to many unsung heroes of adventure, normal people, if you will, who have done extraordinary and interesting things. Generally, people we talk to are willing to share their love and appreciation of whatever experience they've undertaken. Such is the collective love for the outdoors world. 
You may be a new listener or someone who has enjoyed every single one of our podcasts. Either way, you are one of the 7.5 million people who have downloaded our rich and varied content ever since we started in 2005. And we would like to hear your thoughts about what we do at the Outdoor Station. We're currently running a listener survey from January to the end of March 2015. Just a few questions and comments asking for your thoughts about what we've done in the past and where we might go in the future. None of your data is recorded, but your thoughts are. So if you have 10 minutes to spare, please go to the outdoorstation.co.uk website and click the Take Our Survey box on the front page. We would like to keep improving and developing on the foundations of the last 10 years, and with your help, we can be confident that whatever direction we choose, we will still entertain and inform you, and those like you, all around the world. So, the the actual trip itself, people should come to your talk to obviously get all the detail which is, is there, and it's also on your website as well. But I'm curious about the sort of practical things and the things we've all experienced that go out to uh, live in the wilds for, for, for a time. So, on the a trip um, like the Mongolian trip, how did you feel you personally changed? What did you notice about yourself as you started to go across the landscape? Um, well, I definitely noticed myself get a lot skinnier. <laughs> <laughs> No, I had a, um, once I suffered badly from heat exhaustion, you know, I came out of that settlement where I had to rest for seven, eight days to recover. I came out of that settlement a lot more mature with a lot more respect for, for Mother Nature, you know, for, for what damage the sun can do, especially. Uh, and I was actually pretty intimidated to leave that settlement again, hit that same temperature, knowing what damage it did to me. It was intimidating to, to face it again. Uh, and I made sure, you know, I had a silver blanket at the bottom of my rucksack. I made sure I covered my container. I was stopping regularly. I was I was tipping water down my top, soaking my shirt, soaking my hat. Uh, and I just felt like I had, yeah, matured. Whereas previously, prior to the heat exhaustion, I was kind of, yeah, come on, let's get these 40 kilometres done. A bit sort of cocky sort of thing. Yeah, it? It taught yeah. you a bit of a lesson, yeah? And it really, and it really yeah, did, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I needed that lesson, especially for the next expeditions that I'll be planning. Mm. I'll always resort back to that experience in Mongolia, which, well, yeah. was, a, which was learning the hard way, but mm. the most needed way, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, you survived it, and obviously you can reflect on it, and yeah, you recognise yeah. you've learned something. Yeah. So, so that was the practical thing from that point of view. The girts and the people um, and the areas that you pass through and the sort of little settlements, I suppose. Yeah. How, what's the, the land politics like? If somebody's living in a, a girt, do they have the, their area? Is it around them by X number of miles or do they just randomly pop up and that's it? They randomly pop up and that's it. No fences. Um, it's literally no man's land, you know. It's, you can stroll upon it. They're, they're cattle or they're yaks, you know, they're livestock graze wherever they want uh, they normally tend to stay close to the gur because that's where the, the main water source is for the livestock but no it's it's literally no man's land and that's what i really loved about it you know mm. so there was you know it wasn't a case of get off my land type of thing or get off my area they welcomed you in yeah none of that none of that they welcomed us in uh, and sometimes you know if i'd pass a gur if i'd see it in the distance and i'd decide oh, just about a kilometer away just keep walking forwards they would always come down on their on their horse or their motorbike if they had one, and then give me like a uh, a chai, which is their their tea, you know, to take away with me. 
So there was, if they saw you, they would always come over. They're really so hospitable. I can't mm. praise them enough. And would you say, I mean, from personal experience, but I wonder if you would agree or not, that the people with the least give the most? Yeah. Oh, yeah, by far. Uh, not just in Mongolia. All, all, all the countries I've been to uh, are always so helpful. And it's like, well, what do they want in return? And mm. you realise there's absolutely nothing they want in return, just to be generous. Mm. Mm. You uh, were saying that you took some tech with you. Uh, I'd be interested to know what the tech was, because obviously you had a fair amount of uh, battery power to keep it powered up and charged, and you obviously, unfortunately, uh, had uh, an item taken from you. But what what tech did you take for a trip like this? I took the Nikon D5100. That was the camera I had. I took an extra three batteries for that one. The main battery that I was using the solar panel to charge was an anchor, an anchor battery, um, I took a GoPro and an Olympus Tough camera, a tripod, a satellite phone, and my iPhone. Wow, right, okay. And that was pretty much all the electronics that I had. Right, and did you find that the everything charged up okay? Yeah, I was impressed by that anchor battery that I had, and although my solar panel was stolen, the lead that I luckily did buy in Olgi, uh, any bike or car that I would come across I could use their car battery or bike battery to charge my main battery which would last two weeks before I could see come across another bike or car and need to charge that battery again. And as regards navigation did you not have any GPS system to do navigation or did you work solely old school on on a compass and map? Well I wanted to personally do it the old school way on compass and map um, but then I took an iPhone out for backup with the GPS system, <laughs> found out that it failed me massively on day one when it had no tracks. Uh, even the settlements were named completely incorrect. And so after day one, day two, I stopped using the GPS and I was down to down to routes, maps. Uh, any locals that I would come across, I'd always, always ask them as well. All right, OK. So, I mean, you, you obviously had the names of the places that you were going to or the next place you were going to. How did you manage to uh, discuss with them the direction for that? Because obviously, yes, everybody's got a different route to get there. Yeah, it would be, uh, you know, the most awkward thing is the slight mispronunciation in a town mm. would throw them completely off. Um, but once they knew what we were talking about, there's, there's fairly, because it's quite direct, you don't need to go round all the mountains, I suppose. There's always one track, the main track, which mm. the locals do take, uh, which is just a really well-used dirt track uh, they would always send you that way but I did have the maps the maps that I were using were really detailed and at each settlement a water source confirmed water source I would come to it would always say okay carry 10 15 20 25 liters until your next water source and give me how, how many kilometers this was mapped out by Rob and myself before I left Oh, well, that's a good way. I did wonder how you calculated your, your, your water yeah, usage. That was, that was really important. Uh, the biggest failure of this expedition, it, you know, if the, think something was going to go wrong, it would have been down to water, mm. down to lack of water. That would have been the main main problem. Yeah, I can understand that. Going back to your tech, um, you obviously had uh, an MP3 player, and I overheard you saying to somebody you had a thousand songs on there. Yeah. So come on, tell me which song brings it all back. Which song? I tell you what, there was... All sorts. Um, I had from motivational, motivational music that you can find on. Come on, there's one track that'll just bring one it track, straight back. What would it be? Um, I really don't know the, the one track. Which one could it be? The main track? Because I listened to some Spanish music uh, that was always played in Thailand, and of course, going from scuba diving when mm. water is 
all around you to a landlocked country, you know, dying for a bit of water. Uh, that would also always make me feel a bit more upbeat listening to that Spanish music that I first heard in Thailand. I had motivational music from uh, E.T. is his name. You can find it on YouTube, E.T. Motivational Tunes. Uh, and it's really just his powerful lyrics to a bit of music in the background that okay. kept me going. Uh, but a whole range of different songs. I thought you were going to say ABBA or something like that. <laughs> no, actually, no. No, I'd say it depended on, on where I was, you know, listening to the to the music. Sunset, it was a nice sunset in the Gobi Desert, a bit of red-hot chilli peppers, you know, a bit of Bob Marley sometimes as well. Okay. Yeah, a whole range of just crazy different tunes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the tourism in Mongolia, I mean, well, first of all, actually, something else. Mongolia, you were saying um, you were on the seven TV channels they had, which presumably cover the, the whole width of the nation. Yeah. The, um, how, how, how were you received by them, and, and, and what way did your perception of Mongolia change before and after, as it were? Because obviously it's unknown, it's not well charted as a, as a talking point around a coffee table. Yeah. So, so how did your views change uh, about Mongolia generally? Um, I realised how strong their community is there. As a country, they all really, really stick together. You know, everyone, I wouldn't say everyone knows everyone, but they, there's just something about the country that they're, they're very proud, you know, very driven, very proud, uh, very healthy as well, very happy and generous and giving. Uh, and they, you know, they were very warming to, to the whole fact. I walked across the country. Um, it was just bouncing from one TV channel to the next, magazines, papers. Uh, they loved the story, and it's always good when the locals are shocked because if anyone knows how extreme the country is, then, of course, it's going to be the locals. So it's always good seeing their, their reaction. Uh, and I still keep in touch with so many of them uh, still today, and I can't mm. wait to get back out there in July. I mean, is that come as a bit of a surprise how a country like that is, is so tuned into Facebook and technology? Yeah, yeah, it really is because when I was when the first idea came, when I was in Thailand, when I first thought of walking Mongolia, I just saw it as this, you know, really extreme uh, environment barren. and remote, yeah, yeah. barren, all of those words, yeah. 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 Uh, and so, and although it really was extreme, you know, they still have their their cities, they still have their uh, technology, their their Facebook. Um, and yeah, it's it's still easy for you for you to to get a, to get on to get by in these cities. Mm. Well, strange enough, the a couple we interviewed before uh, who cycle around the world have said that actually they took a small laptop with them, and, and it would have been really difficult to do the trip without technology. Oh, really? Yeah, which yeah. I find quite interesting. And they were also saying they had a better signal in China than they do in the UK. No way, that's mad, isn't it? I, oh, I, well, I can't say. I mean, you were right with your satellite phone, though. Presumably you kept... I mean, did you keep daily contact with people? The main thing with the satellite phone was I wanted to log my route. I wanted to log my, my mileage per hour because, obviously, people can say, oh, you, surely you jumped in a car, surely you jumped in a motorbike. So I wanted to have uh, proof of the mileage per hour uh, that Rob, my agent, was looking at. Uh, but for backup, of course, I wanted it for backup, but I do really like my old-school... Um, way of travel you know you're out there alone whether you survive it's it's down to you type mm. of thing and were the maps fairly accurate i mean so you could map your travel all right yeah 
because I'd be following. The only nightmare with the maps is it wasn't that clear, so I would come across a few tracks sometimes, you know, they point off in different directions, and it's all good saying, well, it's easy, I can just head east, this track heads east. One of the tracks I was following, I was heading east, it took me up a hill, it did a complete U-turn back on itself, and I was back in the same position except facing west. <laughs> you know, that's, how, that's how mad it is out there. So the maps weren't helpful in that way. Um, other than that, you know, it's it's had a bit of luck on my side, I suppose. I just went went for the, what I thought might have been the correct track. Mm. Uh, follow it. If I find that it's still curling north or south within the first 15 minutes of walking, that's when I need to worry and find the, the other path. And and did you discover that by sort of keeping one eye on a compass or sort of getting a feel for where the sun was? Um, and I discovered that. The hard way again. I was. I walked. I think it was 16 kilometres off where I should have been, um, and then I came across a gur, and I was following this main track, and I was thinking, surely it'll start heading east again soon. But I asked this local. I forgot which settlement it was, but I asked, you know, the name of the settlement, and he pointed back on my direction, pointed back, and then and then pointed left, heading east, and I knew exactly what he meant because I did look at that track and thought it could be that, but I chose to take the other track and. You know, cost myself an extra mm. sixteen kilometres, so it was uh, well, thirty-two there and back. Really, hey? oh, it's a nice, nice walk. Yeah. <laughs> Podcasting, Podcasting world. world. Award-winning producers of podcasts to inform, inspire, entertain, and encourage people to enjoy a healthy outdoors lifestyle. <laughs> so, looking back at the the trip, uh, how long did it take you exactly? 78 days. 78 days? Yeah. Okay. So uh, if you just finished on day 78, what would you say to yourself on day one? Wow, that's a good question. I've not had that before. What would I say? Persevere. Yeah? Yeah. What advice would you give? What sort of... Oh, okay. So advice. Get some food and, and you know, don't don't underestimate the task. I know I didn't really at the start... But I sort of warmed up to it. I got used to it. I'd been doing it for a good few weeks. Um, conquered the Altai. I was now about to do the do the Gobi, and then the Gobi, you know, slapped me back right back down where I should have been. And so that advice would be, you know, pre- prepare yourself for the Gobi because it's going to be the worst for you. All right, all right. Because I, I liked the part in the talk where you said just before you set off, where you stayed with the locals that were at the at the starting um, town. Yeah. Uh, and when you explained what you were doing, he gave you a look that sort of said you must be out of your mind. Yeah, and that was really intimidating. Actually, uh, this was a guy as well who had summited Everest. He's pointing at himself, broken English, saying Everest. Okay, okay. He looked down at this map that I had in front of him, Mongolia. He was shaking his head, you know, too big, too big. But it wasn't necessarily the words, it was just his facial expressions. He looked really, really worried for me uh, in a way that it was my first time in the country, so I hadn't heard all the crazy stories that he knows or all the bad negative things that have happened that, that, that he knows, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was a scary, scary thought. Mm. You picked up a, a good nickname, which you found out halfway along that, um, that the local media had given you. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was quite an interesting story. Tell me about that. Yeah, so it was once I just came out of the Altai Mountains, about to enter into the Gobi Desert, uh, I was in a small settlement when I had my solar panel stolen, and Jenny, my translator, contacted me and said, um, obviously, how's everything going? But also said that there's a local, a local uh, that the locals have heard about me and that they're following my journey through my website, 
and they've come up and they come up with a name and they're calling me the lonely snow leopard and so obviously I was like right okay didn't think of anything of it at the time especially didn't think my UK tour would be called that um, and so once I asked him you know why the lonely snow leopard because I was curious he says because the lonely snow leopard's the only predator to walk alone and he, the wolves keep a respectful distance from the lonely snow leopard as they did with you you know you made it through the Gobi uh, through the Altai mountains without being attacked so at that point you took your uh, earphones out of your head and actually started paying a bit more attention to what was around you yeah at that point I was uh, well, that was before that when the locals said that the wolves were hunting up ahead and I'd be eaten alive all in terrifying hand gestures to make themselves very clear that was when I was a bit nervous and scared because I'd never seen a wolf before these guys have to deal with them every day did you actually see any in the whole trip? I didn't didn't see any um, I saw footprints but then they could, might not have been the wolves I'm pretty good. I would have liked to have seen them. Maybe mm, not. Maybe from a not distance. Up, maybe not up close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Obviously, before you um, you went out on this trip, you were looking for sponsorship, yeah. uh, as everybody does when they sort of attempt an adventure of some nature. Obviously, I realised that challenges of getting a sponsorship before and after events are completely different. How have you found that now? Uh, what? How have I found sponsorship? Yeah, well, I'm with... presuming you tried to get sponsorship beforehand, and people would have said, "Well, okay, you know, you've got no documented um, evidence or proof of previous trips." I suppose, presumably, then they would have treated you differently now. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and I think they're always going to have that worry when they look at someone and they've not got something big behind them under their belt. They're like, "Why should we sponsor? What if he doesn't make it?" But uh, now that I've got got this under and I've proved I could walk across Mongolia you know for the next expedition I plan uh, I, th- I think they'll just take me a bit more serious and uh, sponsorship should be slightly easier mm. I mean there are a lot of people that do things like this uh, yeah. perhaps not as grand as this but they do adventures well, all the same better, yeah. um, and what advice would you give to them about trying to get sponsorship um, once you've researched it and you're you know you're 110% you know going for it and really want it I think your enthusiasm will, will rub off, you know, get your website out there. Um, and you, the whole, you've got to mentally believe it before you physically before you physically do it or physically achieve it is a saying I really, really do love to live by. They could ask you all sorts of questions. If that's your project, if that's your baby, you'll be able to answer it out of the hat, you know, instantly. Um, and that'll get people hooked in. Good website, good publicity uh, and enthusiasm and determination to see it through. There are a lot of people that are doing challenges. They call them challenges. There are a lot of magazines now based around come and do this challenge, that challenge, or whatever else. Yeah. Do you think that possibly spoils uh, a natural appreciation of the world around us, seeing everything as a challenge rather than as appreciation? I think the challenge pushes people more to do it. So with the companies um, publicising the fact that it's not just a gentle walk or we're not just going to get the helicopter to the uh, top of Kilimanjaro so you can see the view it's not going to hook someone in as much as take on the challenge to attempt to get to the summit of Kilimanjaro. Uh, I think humans need that need that goal to push themselves, you know, and there's more self-accomplishment if they succeed in the challenge than if they were to go to that environment and not challenge themselves. But then, you know, going to that challenge, uh, going to that environment and not challenge yourself can equally be, you know, as beautiful. You're soaking it up and, and taking it in in more ways, aren't you, really? Mm. so a couple of final questions really because I appreciate your time um, yeah, no so what, did, what would you say was your of the trip your highest point and your lowest point forgetting the beginning and the end okay 
highest point, there was, I tell you what, there was so many highs and I, I feel happy to say that was probably more highs than lows because the lows I always try and transform into highs. I see a low, uh, a challenging point as a, as a positive to experience the low and overcome it and ride through it turns into a high. So at the end of each day where I really struggle to push on and get through, then to have made it, not given up, to be sitting or, or, or eating, you know, a, a ration pack with a beautiful sunset, maybe eagles flying in the distance, gazelles hopping in the distance, that every evening is, is a, a big high for me. Okay, okay. Um, and we always like to talk about gear because everybody's a gear freak, really. <laughs> uh, I noticed you had a um, Hilleberg Acto. Uh, I noticed you had a, some of the, one of the multi-fuel stoves. Uh, I notice you yeah, had I, some. Uh, well, in the business, so yeah, I've, got, yeah. I've got that sort of eye. Uh, I think it was crack hopper poles. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. What else did I notice? There was a couple of other items there. You had a, an army mug. I noticed that was your sort of eating yeah. drinking mug. We always like to find out from people what was the best piece of kit and what was the worst piece of kit. And it can be something really, really simple, like some Velcro or something like that. Yeah. But you know, what would you say looking back that was uh, was best and worst? And then the final, the third question, probably coming out of that, was what would you improve for next for doing that trip again? Okay, the best equipment I would probably have to say was the water to go bottles. Yeah, I thought so. I, I really, really loved them. I didn't like the idea of going into the Gobi Desert, burning more calories by pumping, you know, this water to purify it. I like top it up as you go, built-in filter, screw it on, off you go, and you can you can drink. Uh, in terms of worst equipment. Um, that's a hard one. I, I think what I would definitely change, though, next time is the camera that I take would be a lot smaller just to fit in my pocket, but really good quality and, of course, waterproof because the Nikon that I took, the Nikon D5100, wasn't waterproof, you know, wasn't dustproof, and it was big, so I couldn't carry it on me. So every time I wanted to get a bit of footage, I would also always have to take the trailer off and then unpack it completely, which was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I've experienced that sort of thing myself. Oh, and those yeah. a small compact camera all of a sudden pays for itself, doesn't oh, it? Oh, it's so helpful, man. Just in your pocket, whip it out. Even if it is some cool thing happening right now, you can just whip it out your pocket and capture that moment. Yeah, yeah. You were sponsored by um, a film company, I understand, uh, in the UK. So I presume there's a... Is there a programme in the office? It was by Sensor Shop Productions, yeah, based in, in London. But... Um, I'm now looking elsewhere for, for, for that documentary. They can't seem to get that off the ground with their own expertise. They're only a small company. Um, but, of course, before I went to Mongolia, they were offering me money, and I was going to instantly take it uh, so I can fund the expedition. Uh, so now I'm looking at another team that hopefully can do something with it. And just talking about funds for a second, forgetting the actual flights, yeah. what, what did a, a trip like this, would you say, has cost? Um, all together with the training as well, the equipment, with the flights, a max of ten to £12,000. Which isn't very much really for something of no. this size, is it? No, that's really cheap, yeah. Yeah, ten to £12,000 max uh, and 14 months to plan. Because a lot of people you think that you need years to plan. You don't, you don't necessarily need years and you don't necessarily need all the uh, you know, big, expensive equipment as well. Well, thanks very much for your time. It's been really good to chat to you and find a bit, bit more information behind the story. It's been enjoyable listening to your first talk. I hope yes. the, the rest of the talk goes on the tour goes equally as well. Where can people find out more about you, more photographs, more information? 
yeah, appreciate that. Thanks for thanks for reaching out and coming along to to see me. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, to reach out, especially for the next expedition that I'm planning, or even if they fancy joining me on a, a trek across northern Mongolia for two weeks, you can visit www.ashdykes.com, and they'll, that's where I'll be keeping all the latest updates. Smashing. Well, safe travels on your next journey, and I look forward to chatting to you when you return next time. Excellent. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Make sure you check out ashdykes.com for more information about his current series of talks, his travels and future plans. All the details are there to follow him on Twitter and if you want to drop him a line or maybe join him on one of his forthcoming shorter trips back to Mongolia, the information is all there. And of course, there are all links on the Outdoor Station website too. If you're listening to this before April the 25th, 2015, please don't forget that backpackinglight.co.uk are having another lightweight outdoor show at our premises in Malvern, and we would love to see you there. Details and the video from last year's show can be found on the Backpacking Light website. And we're looking forward to another glorious spring day surrounded by like-minded outdoors people. Well, thanks for listening. There's more coming from me shortly, including an interview with Jasper Wynne on his recent walk from Munich to Paris during the winter of 2014. Once again, wild camping all the way. So stay tuned for that. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Mm-hmm.